Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the second episode of the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast. Today's very special guest is John Collins, professor of Old Testament criticism at Yale Divinity School. We discuss his work editing the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're confronted with the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle. You know, yet huge number of small fragments. Why he passed on Mel Gibson's request to work on the film Passion of the Christ. So they sent me the script, and I was looking for Jesus as Braveheart. And Professor Collins tells us why he doesn't feel bad about testing the faith of his students in the classroom. What virtue is there in believing things for which you do not have sufficient evidence. Thank you, Professor Collins, for joining us today on the Quadcast. My pleasure. (laughs) The first question that I have for you is, there is a common stereotype that Catholics don't read or don't value the Bible as much as other Christian denominations, but you break down that stereotype. As Roman Catholic, you are an Old Testament scholar, and you teach the popular course at Yale Divinity School titled, What Are Biblical Values? I have to ask, what are biblical values, and is there a different set of values between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, uh, the reason I teach the course is that biblical values are not what most people think they are. In what ways? That most people think that the Bible is very rigid and that it uh, propounds all the favorite theses of religious conservatives, both Catholic and Protestant. So I like to start with the question, does the Bible affirm a right to life? Since that is a popular concept with some denominations, including our own, and of course it doesn't. Uh, Does the Bible prohibit abortion? Well, no, actually. It doesn't permit it either, but it doesn't actually address the question. What does it say about homosexuality? Very little. Basically, two verses in the Old Testament and one in the New. And still, some people would have you believe that this was the center of the whole thing. So, What I do in that course, as in many of my other courses, is remedial education. You know, that a lot of people think they know what's in the Bible and project onto the Bible whatever they would like it to say. And so I am trying to do a little furniture restore, scrape off some of the varnish and get back to the real thing. And I have on occasion been teased by being told that that is a very Protestant endeavor to get back to the actual meaning of scripture. I read this quote the other day that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. Yet many see the ancient collection of books as irrelevant to the modern world. What's your response? Oh, I don't find it irrelevant at all. You know, there are always some people who say that you shouldn't study the Bible historically. That's imprisoning it in the past. But, you see, to study it historically is to try to imagine a real-life situation in which this might have happened. And when you do that, you find human nature hasn't really changed all that much. 
that most of the big problems in the Old Testament have to do with greed, abuse of power in one way or another, and these are the problems that are very much with us. Uh, you know, you can read the book of Amos and take it down to Wall Street. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> but, That's great. <laughs> um, I read that actor and director, Mel Gibson, personally called you to request your help in Aramaic translation for the film Passion of the Christ. One, how did that conversation play out? What was it like to have a conversation with Mel Gibson? And then how did you become an expert in Aramaic in the first place? Well, this, I didn't actually have a conversation with him because I wasn't in my office when he called. Oh and my gosh, I you called, sent Mel Gibson I to voicemail. back. But uh, <laughs> I called back, I got some aid of his who wasn't nearly as interesting. This was, I had just moved here to Yale. Uh, we, the school was under reconstruction. My office was in a building down at the back that has now been destroyed. And I went in and picked up the phone and I got, uh, Mr. Collins, this is Mel Gibson. Uh, I'm looking for somebody to translate a script into Aramaic. And you were recommended to me by Father Fitzmaier. Father Fitzmaier was a, a great scholar who just died in the last year, actually, in his 90s. He was a Jesuit. I'm not sure that he was really being nice to me when he recommended me for this. I think he, he was a much better Aramaic scholar than I am. Uh, I don't, I'm not uh, a specialist in Aramaic. You know, I've, I've used Aramaic because I've written a commentary on the book of Daniel, which is partly in Aramaic, uh, but uh, I really would not be the person to translate a script into spoken Aramaic. So and what was your contribution to the movie or to it the film? Was, it, thanks be to God, it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I dodged a bullet on that one. I actually asked, you know, when I called back, I thought I might get Mel, but I didn't. And uh, so, uh, so they sent me the script. And I was looking for Jesus as Braveheart, something that would resonate <laughs> with me as an anti-imperialist uh, Jesus. Uh, but instead, a few pages in, a snake starts to talk to him. And at that point, I quit. Now, if I had read on, a lot of people I know were offended by the way he depicted the Jews in the, the film. I didn't actually get that far in the script. So you so passed on Mel Gibson. I, I passed on that. Oh, wow. But it was, I only got the script really out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. I never really had any intention of doing it. <laughs> so how does one become an expert, though, or in an almost extinct language? Well, my first ancient languages, I started when I was 12. Oh, my gosh. I went to a boarding school that was run by a religious order in Ireland. And in those days, and I hesitate to say when that was, but you had to have Latin to go to university. Latin was regarded as a basic requirement of education. So everybody did Latin. And the dean of students called out 12 of us and said, you're going to do Greek. Oh, it never crossed my mind to do Greek, but I was only 12. 
but I liked it. And then when I graduated from high school, I joined that religious order. Which religious order? The Holy Ghost Fathers or the Spiritans. In this country, they run Duquesne University, but they were mainly a missionary congregation in Africa, and they had a few schools in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And what caused you to leave? I will get to that. Let me <laughs> let me finish the first part first. Uh, but when I went to go to university, then I said I would like to do classics. And the dean of students said, you can do classics if you also do Hebrew. And then you can teach scripture. And up to that point, I had, frankly, no interest whatsoever in the Old Testament. But, you know, it turned out to be very interesting. And so I got into it. And um, my professor in Dublin was a priest who later became Archbishop of Dublin. He was a person of some influence. And it was thanks to him, really, then that I was allowed to go to Harvard to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would have been in the middle of my seminary studies, but I got a schol- my life was determined by scholarships in large part. And so I arrived uh, at Harvard to do my PhD. And uh, while I was at Harvard, I met Adela Yarbrough, and uh, that's why I left the religious order. Your wife, <laughs> <Basically>, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I did great. go back and teach in Dublin for one year in the early 70s. Wow. And, and, and then we got married and moved to Chicago. And How did you discern that you were called to marriage instead of a religious order? What was the final Actually, decision? Mo- most people figured that out when it happens. If you haven't had occasion to discern it yet, I don't doubt you will. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most natural discernment uh, in human experience. <laughs> wow. So in 1946, Bedouin shepherds entered a cave in the Judean desert by the Dead Sea in Israel and found copies of ancient Jewish religious manuscripts which are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which include the oldest copy of the Ten Commandments. You were one of the editors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which document did you edit, and what was that experience like? Actually, I only edited two very small things uh, because, you know, when the scrolls were discovered, to begin with, I was a little bit too young to be involved, uh, but there was an international team And they were the only people with access to them down until the 1980s. And then they expanded the team a bit. And then there was a big row in the early 90s because people were complaining that they hadn't published these scrolls. And at that point, they reorganized the team and the editor-in-chief, Emmanuel Tove, went around asking a large number of people, anybody he thought would be able to do this, to do a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that I came into it. And I edited uh, a text called Pseudo-Daniel. Okay. It's probably two different texts in Aramaic. Wow. Very fragmentary. And then another one called The Prayer of Nabonidus, which is probably an earlier form of the story that you get in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, where it's Nebuchadnezzar's madness. 
And so now, what was the translation process? Well, now, these fragments had been identified back in the 1950s by a Polish scholar named Joseph Milik. Because the people who worked on the scrolls in the 1950s were confronted with the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle. You know, you had huge number of small fragments. And it really was a fantastic thing that they sorted these out and made them into, into texts or documents. So, you know, and they had been translated before, but not all the fragments. And so what I did was line these up. I did most of my work uh, on a microfilm. Uh, And then towards the end, a little bit on computer. But mostly I had um, a transparency of them that I would put under the light. And you could see the letters better that way. How long did this take? It didn't take all that long because it wasn't all that big a text. So a year? Uh, I would say, I mean, it was spread over a year, but I wasn't working on it all the time. Something like that. And some of the documents were written during the first century CE, during the time of Jesus. How do the Dead Sea Scrolls enhance our understanding of Christianity? Mainly by telling us the context in which Christianity developed. Now, uh, give you one example that comes to mind. There is an Aramaic text that I've worked a lot on, actually, uh, that is a prophecy, a revelation, and somebody says, talks about a figure who is going to come, and son of God he will be called, and son of the Most High they will call him, which is almost exactly what is said of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Now, they weren't thinking of Jesus, uh, but it was a messianic text. And I think the significance of it is that it shows that Son of God was a messianic title. And this is how that expression came to be applied to Jesus. Now, the Essian community, a sect of ancient Judaism, is believed to have authored the Dead Sea Scrolls. When I studied this summer in Qumran, my instructor, who was an archaeologist, he said that he believes that John the Baptist was an Essian because of the ascetic nature of the community, which seems to align with the New Testament description of John the Baptist. Do you subscribe to this belief? Absolutely not. Why? <laughs> what is your is argument? Sheer hokum. <laughs> and there are there are several people who go around saying that Jesus and John the Baptist might have been members of the Essene community at some point. I don't think either of them would have lasted a week in that community. The because, strict eating habits? Well, what? it's not so much the strict eating habits as they were obsessed with purity. This was their raison d'etre. That's what they were worried about all the time. Now, white people, some people think John the Baptist might have been there is they washed a lot. And this in a very dry climate where water was scarce. So it was compulsive washing. John the Baptist, though, was preaching a kind of uh, baptism as extreme unction. You know, a final 
dampen down before the flames of the eschaton, so to speak. Uh, but And Jesus certainly uh, said that you shouldn't be all that obsessed about purity. Mm-hmm. It's not what goes into the mouth that makes one impure, but what comes out of it. That's the other end of the spectrum. You know, you have uh, those great variety in Judaism at the time, and these were at different ends of the spectrum. Uh, Jesus especially, but John the Baptist, who I think his concerns were just very different mm-hmm. from these people. Um, the people in Qumran, you know, were institutionalized. They were obsessed with hier- uh, the hierarchy. You know, you defer to the whoever is older than you and so forth. John the Baptist wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this year, actually, a new Dead Sea Scroll cave was discovered, but there was Nothing no yeah, no <laughs> evidence of new scrolls, just some artifacts. Um, do yeah. you expect any more documents to be unearthed? Oh, I would imagine that sooner or later there will. There are all sorts of stories about Uh, documents that might be out there. You see, a lot of these scrolls were found by Bedouin and then purchased. But now, the the main middleman was a man named Candle, a cobbler in Bethlehem, and his family is still in the business. They still have things in vaults in Switzerland. Nowadays, we're not too sure what they have. A bigger problem nowadays is that people keep producing things. You know, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, which is about to open in Washington, mm-hmm. you have a pretty good chance that you will see ancient scrolls that were freshly produced <laughs> in order to be displayed in the Museum of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And those things are very hard to detect actually. But I would think, you know, that sooner or later, there will be more discoveries. Um, And we actually, we first met at Roman Catholic Fellowship at Yale Divinity School. You're practicing Catholic, and you hold the title of Yale Divinity School Professor of Old Testament Criticism. In what ways has your faith been impacted by your scholarly study and criticism? Um, You know, when I was uh, in a religious order and studying in Dublin, my professor, who later became archbishop, used to say, faith is an act of reason. If you want to know what's true, you know, use the normal ways of going about discovering what is true. Faith is assent to what is true. So I never had a big problem Uh, uh, you know, reconciling faith and scholarship. I figure if you do your scholarship right, it should lead you to the truth, and the truth will make you free. But for some students who are in your class who feel that what they're learning from you um, is testing their faith, do you feel bad about it? No, I don't. I feel good about it, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there's a strange idea, uh, very current in this country, not unique to this country, but very current here, that faith is believing things for which you do not have adequate evidence. 
and that there's some virtue in that. And to my mind, that idea is simply crazy. What virtue is there in believing things for which you do not have sufficient evidence? By evidence here, I mean reason to believe. I don't mean proof with the beyond the possibility of doubt. Uh, we seldom have proof like that of anything. But, you know, you have reasons to believe one thing rather than another. And uh, that should be sufficient. But the idea that, you know, what you happen to be taught growing up is somehow uh, the one sealed, God-given virtue of truth that God decided for some strange reason to deny to most of humanity, but in part to you. That idea is not a healthy one. And I do whatever I can to dispel it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Professor Collins, thank you so much on that note for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you.